Hello, and welcome to the Libertarian Podcast from the Hoover Institution. I'm your host, Troy Sinek, joined, as always, by the Libertarian himself, Professor Richard Epstein, Senior Fellow at the Hoover Institution, as well as Professor of Law at NYU and Senior Lecturer at the University of Chicago. Today, revising the Constitution. So, Richard, this is a show that you and I have been talking about doing for a little while, looking at things that you think the founding fathers may have gotten wrong in constructing the Constitution or aspects of the document that are controversial. Um, let me start you here. The late Antonin Scalia appearing on Hoover's video program, Uncommon Knowledge, with Peter Robinson a few years ago, mm-hmm. he said that he thought one of the mistakes in the original document was that the founders actually made it too hard to change, made the amendment process too cumbersome. Would you agree with that sentiment? Well, actually, it's a very complicated question because it turns out that the difficulty of doing this in many cases depends upon the total size of the uh, population. If you have a relatively small group of 13 states and so forth, generally speaking, with a little bit of horse trading, you can get all this done. When you start having 50 states and 435 members of the House and 1,000, 100, 100 members of the Senate, it turns out to be a lot more difficult to do. And, and so, you know, it wasn't constant over time. It wasn't clear that the founders made a mistake. It's probably more clear that there's what we call a scaling effect on this particular issue. That being said, I'm I'm very much less confident about my judgment on this than Justice Scalia turns out to be. Um, (laughs) I can tell you the things where I think things have gone very badly, uh, and I think that all the amendments that would be likely to happen in the current political climate would start to make them worse. And so, you know, my sense is that if we had an open constitutional convention in which anybody could put forward any particular devices, what would happen is that the major amendments would be all of those which would be necessary to legitimate constitutionally uh, the great progressive revolution that started in 1937, actually somewhat before that, and has continued to pace through these times, and so that weak protection of property rights, weak protections of economic liberties and so forth, would now be part and parcel of the constitutional um, system in the United States. Um, If you had, for example, a constitutional convention that dealt with campaign financing, it's important to understand when you had the McConnell case some years ago, um, our good friend uh, Justice Stevens and Justice O'Connor wrote their joint opinion starting to say, as the progressive Elihu Root, he was an NYU guy, uh, started, um, we know that money in politics is a terrible thing. And I don't know any such thing as being true under these circumstances and I think that statement is false. But if you think about the current situation, all the proposals to amend the First Amendment would be, in effect, proposals to overturn the decision in Citizens United, uh, which as far as I'm concerned, is absolutely in the wheelhouse of free speech, talking about electoral communications made by a corporation, i.e. a corporation that only does political movies, um, right before an election, which is exactly when speech starts to matter the most. And so I'm not a particular enthusiast about this because I know it's going to be a leftward tilt. Now, what about moving to the right? Well, I'm not so sure that I know what I would want to do that way, which I couldn't do by judicial decisions to make these things better. And, you know, to give you some examples again with respect to these issues, um, you know, you have now the immigration case coming forward, and the question is, what's the scope of executive power? And, you know, there's a lot of doctrine out 
there which starts to say that when the president knows that the Congress has explicitly prohibited certain kinds of action, he can't say, well, if they don't want to go along with me, I'm just going to do it myself because I know I'm right. And, you know, that issue is going to come before the Supreme Court. And my hope is that on that particular question, it would not be a 4-4 split, notwithstanding the fact that you're dealing with the hot button issue of immigration, but that people would understand that in effect that the to take care that the laws be faithfully executed does not mean uh, to ignore the laws whenever you find them improvident or inconvenient. Um, and so I don't know what kind of constitutional amendment you want in that area. I would just want to leave things as it is. So in general, my view is uh, I would rather things work through the interpretive process today. Uh, my great worry is that, uh, particularly in the current climate, is that there's a strong, very powerful leftward socialist drift in the Congress, or at least in the political elections. The president may be somebody like uh, God protect us, Bernie Sanders or Donald Trump, um, you know, and you, you get a left-wing Congress and you get a left-wing court. Separation of powers doesn't work if everybody agrees with everybody. And in fact, at that point, uh, a constitutional convention, if it took hold, could be really very disastrous. Let me take you back for a moment to what you mentioned a few minutes ago, the New Deal revolution in the courts. Did that stem from any inherent deficiencies in the document, or was that purely a matter of how it was being read at the time? Well, no, I don't think there was any serious deficiencies in the doctrine. In fact, I, I think that most of the people who were trying to deal with the depression had no idea what brought it about or what should be done in order to deal with it. The constant mantra of the progressives was that if you have a national problem, what you need to do is to find national solutions. And to some extent, that's correct. But the national solution that you needed to find was one that reduced the heavy level of taxes that had been imposed by Herbert Hoover under the Revenue Act of 19. Uh, 32, which was a terrible mistake, and to try and reverse the radical deflation which take, took place during this period, which made it impossible to pay off debts in constant dollars, which led to the failure of many banks. And if you could have reinflated the currency, lowered the tax structure and so forth, got rid of the tariffs, you would have done just fine. Uh, but what Roosevelt did, and, and it is his most unforgivable decision, is that he thought for a variety of reasons, some political and some misguided economic, is that when you were Faced with this massive dislocation, what you had to do was to create as many cartels as you possibly could and to put them in place as rapidly as possible. And if you try to figure out what a cartel does, is it only makes a bad situation worse. And so if you have the rhetoric that says, well, we have to keep the prices up for farmers, if we have to keep the wages up for unions, so we need to have the National Labor Relations Act and the Agricultural Adjustment Act, you forget that that's a transfer payment to two groups, which is going to be paid for by somebody else to wit the people who have to pay the higher prices or suffer the disruption in services. And it turns out the game is not zero sum. Uh, cartels actually cost money to administer and they're inefficient in their operation. And I think if you actually did an honest accounting of it, uh, probably the Roosevelt policies on cartelization uh, had a very substantial contribution to the delay in the recovery, which didn't really start to take place until the eve of World War um, uh, two. And so, you know, here you've got this situation. And so what do they do? They expand the scope of the commerce power to allow for the cartelization. They knock out all the protection of economic liberties. They've taken a bad situation and they made it worse. And if you actually try to look at the time and ask whether anybody then actually understood what was going on, uh, given the regnant economic theories of the time, what Roosevelt was doing would have been considered as enlightened. I think in retrospect, the conservative critique of this on both the monetary side 
side, on the tariff side, on and everything else was correct, and that if you'd kept to the original Constitution, this is what would have happened. There would have been state competition in goods, which would have made it harder for states to impose cartel, and you would have had a federal government which could keep open, if it chose, the arteries of interstate commerce so as to allow national markets to be created. And that was the original design. Uh, the mistake in the original design was the mercantile impulses of Alexander Hamilton, notwithstanding the play, uh, because he wanted to put a tariff war again, wall around the United States, which turned out to be enormously complicated and was one of the contributors to the Civil War, given the fact that tariffs benefited northern industries and hurted southern agricultural interests, um, who now had less choice in the goods and services available to them. Since you brought up Alexander Hamilton, I'm going to keep us in sort of the early days of the republic. When we're talking about sort of the design of the Constitution, a lot of people point to the very concept of judicial review, which is what many sort of lay people think of as the primary function of the federal courts as extra constitutional. Will you sort of explain that argument and also where you come down on it? Yeah, look, I mean, let's go back before the Constitution to figure out the way in which people who believed in separation of power sort of understood what was going on. And if you take Montesquieu, you take Locke and so forth, um, generally speaking, the serious powers are divided between the executive and a legislative branch, usually which consists of, of two houses, and one of those is supposed to be set against the other. And sure enough, if you look at our Constitution, this particular element is very much there. You get the president who's out outside the control of the parliamentary system. There's an executive which is independent. He can only be impeached, which is a very tough procedure. Then you have a Senate elected on long terms with this one list of powers, and you have the House um, with a shorter terms and other lists of powers. They understood what they were doing. So what was the role of the courts under those circumstances? They believed essentially that the courts had one function. You figured out what the law was, and then what you did is you made sure that people would have access to the courts, so the rights that were given to them would be protected. And so one of the things that the Constitution provides in its sort of backhanded fashion is that it says that the writ of habeas corpus should only be um, suspended in cases of public unrest or foreign invasion, um, but it doesn't tell you when the writ ought to be granted. But it would be an absolute catastrophe under the old system of judicial review if the Congress could come along and say that nobody could bring a writ of habeas corpus anywhere because that would upset the balance. And so when you got to Marbury and Madison, and it was a beautiful case of ambiguity. Uh, what the Congress purported to do was to force the Supreme Court to take jurisprudence in a jurisdiction over a set of cases involving ambassadors or uh, the appointment of this minor official, over which, under Marshall's reading of the Constitution, they could not do. And so judicial review circa 1789 to 1803 meant much more accurately that the political branches of government could not force the judicial branches to take something. It was the guardian of its own rights and could only decide those cases that were properly entrusted to it. But if the question was whether or not they meant judicial supremacy, i.e. they could strike down laws, um, the Supreme Court was not designed structurally with that particular thing in mind. And the first thing to note is there's something known as the exceptions clause. And that's very clear that what it says is, you know, uh, Congress can strip the appellate jurisdiction of the United States Supreme Court in whatever particular areas it thinks it's appropriate to do so. If you believe in judicial review as supremacy, you can't possibly take the view that the Congress, which has to be brought to heel, um, is in effect now in a position um, where it could choke off the Supreme Court. 
There's also the Supremacy Clause, which says that the federal constitution, the treaties and statutes and regulations pursuant to it dominate all state laws. And this is true, but people forget the second clause. And what it says is the judges in every state shall be bound by it. And so what seems pretty clear is that they had this notion of federal supremacy, and then they had a check on the federal government by having the states have the ultimate say of the way in which this document ought to be interpreted. Um, Otherwise, that second clause doesn't make much sense. Now, this is a ruinous system of constitutional design in a federalist system because states will yield all sorts of inconsistent judgments. And the second of the great early cases, Martin and Hunter's Lessee, which was decided by Justice Joseph Story, a staunch federalism, um, he reads the statute, which is the case 20, section 25 of the Judiciary Act, which purports to confer uh, jurisdictions on the federal courts to resolve cases where the states uh, decide things against the federal constitution. Um, that was clearly not part of the original deal. The original deal was checks and balances by the state against the federal government. But he says it has to be this way, otherwise this nation will not survive. And that's what my daddy used to call a long time ago rising above principle. When you looked at a situation, you realized <laughs> Realized there was a disastrous provision put in there. Uh, the whole judicial power was messed up in some way. And you get Justice Story riding on his white horse and coming to the rescue. And now, you know, 200 years later, do I want to come around and say, well, you know, I'm an originalist and let's go back and get Marbury and Madison right for heaven's sakes and let's undo all the mistakes that we had in Martin Hunter's Lessee and then let the nation flow out to sea. Uh, you know, I don't believe that, you know, uh, let justice reign even if the heavens may fall. I think. In effect, there's something called the prescriptive constitution, where if you change things and it goes long enough and it works, you don't look back. Just the way if somebody trespasses upon your land for 10 years, he's a trespasser, statute of limitations passes, now he has full title. And you need a rule of prescription to sort of update these things. That's not in the original constitution. I would not know how to draft an amendment for it. But I think that when people start talking about culture and tradition and custom and evolution in the constitutional sense, they're bringing back the English metaphors to the American written document. It's this kind of prescriptive issue that they're actually worrying about. It's no longer operative, of course, but one of the most often maligned passages of the Constitution is the three-fifths clause, where you you count slaves as three-fifths of a person for the purposes of determining the population numbers that controlled the electoral representation. That is often trotted out, Richard, as an example of the fundamental racism of the document. Is that how you read it? Well, I mean, it's worse than that in some sense and better than that in some other sense. Um, What happens is a constitution is a deal and it's a pact with the devil. And hard as it is to believe today, the case for the abolition of slavery was having an uphill fight in England and in the United States at this time. And slavery was common in many areas. And, you know, there were strong abolitionists. If you go back and read Justinian, he says that slavery is against natural law. That's sentence number one. And then the entire book on persons tells you how it is you run a slave system with an immensely sophisticated law of slavery, which I teach with a certain degree of grim advocation, you know, admiration. Uh, when you get there, they were clearly divided. And what they did is they compromised the deal. And it's important that you look at all the parts of the deal to understand what's going on. Well, one of the things they did is they had this three-fifths stuff. What it did is it essentially put the southern states on steroids, and it helps explain why it is they had disproportionate influence, notwithstanding the fact of their relatively small population. And it made a huge difference. They also had the Fugitive Slave Acts, 
uh, only they call them persons bound in service, another metaphor. And they were very clear that you had to return these slaves. And several people resigned from the federal bench rather than carry out these orders. And the abolitionists knew that it was clear. Um, and each time you had legislation on it, it got tougher. Uh, my college friend Eric Foner wrote a very fine book on this recently in which he details the way in which as part of these compromises, things got worse and worse under this situation. Uh, so, I mean, yes, these are a disgrace. Um, what am I supposed to tell you? It's also important to understand that certain portions of the Constitution, which don't look like they're directed towards slavery, actually were put in there to help the slave states. Congress shall have the power to regulate commerce amongst the several states. One of the things that was perfectly clear about this is Congress did not have the power to regulate manufacture and agriculture within the states because then it could abolish slavery. Um, and of course, if you put it off the table by an original instruction, you're protecting the southern states. There's another clause in there which says that the citizens of one state shall be entitled to the privileges and immunities of the citizens of other states. And this means that you can go back and forth at great state lines. And what they were trying to do, quite simply, was to make sure that uh, slave states could export their goods to non-slave states and that nobody could actually, um, on the state level, prevent these kinds of movements. And so you have all of these things in there. And and, you know, I'm not going to try and defend this stuff, but I'm going to say you've got to put it in perspective, and I'm going to swallow deeply when I say it, because remember, this is the same constitution that gets rid of test acts. This is the same constitution that figures out how to run a system of checks and balances, enumerated powers, um, and all the rest of that stuff. This is the same constitution that figures out how to enshrine religious liberty to protect freedom of speech and so forth. What you have to understand is that humanity is a rather messy business, and that some of the most passionate defenders of free speech and of private property with slave owners. It's bizarre. Um, now, what's, how do we know how crazy this was? The passage I like to look to is one that was written by James Madison. Um, he's trying to explain in the Federalist Papers what's going on, and he has to come to this messy stuff about slavery. He doesn't defend it. What he does is he refers to his unnamed southern brethren who explains why it is that this thing is there, and he puts everything in the indirect voice. That's a direct tip-off that he knows that he's basically downing seasickness because he's made the judgment, probably right in the grand scheme of history, that it's better to accept slavery uh, than to have the Union break up and chaos um, potentially take place on the North American continent. These are very hard choices. The guys who made them had to live with them. Today, it's easy to take pot shots at people for having done it. Uh, but remember, we did fight a civil war to get rid of all of this stuff. It actually worked. And, you know, as far as I'm concerned, the effort to try to undo slavery in all the years that followed was sort of went up and down. Jim Crow is inexcusable. Brown v. Board is a highlight and all this stuff. I mean, the history is very, very complicated. And all I would urge is that when it comes to the Constitution, you don't say, well, you know, uh, these slave owners were really in favor of private property and capitalism. And since we're against slavery, we ought to have socialism. Uh, long Many years ago, I wrote something about South Africa, and I think the great achievement of somebody like Mason Nelson Mandela was he finally figured out in his own way uh, that getting rid of apartheid was not an open invitation for socialism if you wanted to keep that country alive. And so South Africa has had a rocky time since 1994, but it hasn't been a cataclysmic one. All right. Thank you, Richard, and thank you to our listeners and remember, you can find Richard's weekly column, The Libertarian, by visiting Defining Ideas at Hoover.org. And you can follow him on Twitter at Richard A. Epstein. For the Hoover Institution, I'm Troy Sinek. Thanks for listening. This podcast has been a production of the Hoover Institution. 
For more information about our work, please visit hoover.org.